Welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. David, housing is a big issue. You know, we've been wanting to do more on this topic. Uh, it's a, it's a, one of those things that will hold back our region if we don't figure out how to create more supply, uh, given the increasing populations that we have uh, throughout the region. And so uh, this conversation with Duncan Williams, the president and CEO of the Construction Association of Nova Scotia, is a pretty good place to start. And uh, he raises a lot of really good issues uh, about, you know, some of the challenges facing the industry um, now, including workforce, obviously, but also higher interest rates, which is going to have a dampening impact on on construction inevitably uh, and he starts he, he believes it's already started a little bit so those are challenges that that, that need to be uh, obviously uh, addressed yeah it's a it's a very fundamental issue we're going to need housing development all across nova scotia all across atlantic canada rural and urban if you look at data from the census you know in the 1980s and 1990s we were building a lot more houses all across the region even though population wasn't growing in rural areas there was a lot more young people leaving their parents' homes and demanding housing in the community. And that all sort of has gone downhill since. So we're going to have to build up capacity for, for construction all across the region. He was telling us that their estimates are that they need at least 12,000 uh, new workers in the sector over the next few years. That's huge. Uh, and, of course, we spent a lot of time on the conversation uh, talking about that. And the, the number that really got me, Don, was he said, they're going to need around 13,000 new units per year, and that's from, from about 5,000 today. So can you imagine what it's going to take to double or more than double the, the housing construction in Nova Scotia? Well, I'm really glad to get that number because, uh, you know, it's a number that I've been looking for for a while. And, uh, you know, to give a, some context context to the problem that we face in, in, in at least this province, and it's similar to uh, certainly New Brunswick and, and PEI right now because of population growth, a little less so in Newfoundland and Labrador. But nonetheless, uh, you know, the, the supply uh, challenges are enormous. And a third of the current workforce is retiring in the next 10 years. You know, we have we put a de-emphasis on trades training in our in our region, in our country for a long time and tried to direct people to go to uh, university, which at the time was probably a good strategy. But now it's not. You know, we need more people to think about trades as a as a good career choice. They're pretty well paid, by the way. You know, um, you know, I know from personal experience with our company, Cabco, that we have some very good paying trades jobs very good and so it's a good it's a good career option but you know not for a long time they weren't considered good trade good uh, career options so there's an attitudinal shift that has to happen for young people to consider the, the trades uh, and you know that, i think that that's actually starting to happen and then we have the challenge of figuring out how to bring more immigrants into the sector and uh you know that's uh you know it's mo mostly a white male dominated sector you know uh, with some attitudes that go with that, I'm sure as well. So, you know, lots of challenges on the labor force side, um, and uh, you know, not not a lot of uh, uh, sort of short term uh, answers to it at, at the moment. It seems. Well, you kind of need to have a little bit of ambition, though. That one of the most mobile workforces in in the globe is construction. If you look at Europe and the Middle East, it's a very mobile sector. And, uh, you know, we just haven't historically Canada, not just this region, hasn't brought in a lot of construction labor internationally. And we just have to start doing more of that. I'd like to see whole construction teams coming in uh, from these countries where there's a surplus of construction workers. Now, there's complexities to that. There's Canadian regulations and standards and all this other stuff. But at the end of the day, it's like a lot of industries. It's been kind of controlled by you know the unions by the red seal training by the the various things that happen in the industry to try to ma manage who gets in mm. uh and historically that might have been a good thing because you didn't necessarily want an oversupply of trades because then you'd have long periods where they'd be unemployed but now as as we talk about in this podcast we need a structural change in the size of the workforce and we need to have creative ways to solve that problem 
Yeah, exactly. So, you know, this is a very good conversation. One other thing I just wanted to add, because I think it's an important side topic, is the issue of affordable housing, um, which is, uh, you know, in a in a situation where there's uh, more demand su- than supply, affordable housing becomes a big problem. And, uh, you know, the private sector does play a role in terms of providing affordable houses, but the government plays a bigger role in terms of uh, regulatory um, sort of processes that allow scale of construction, which is, I think, something that, you know, we've resisted in the, in the region. You know, it's having a building over six stories is a big problem here. Uh, yet uh, the economics of uh, providing affordable houses really demands bigger scale. If you have a prime lot in a downtown location, like, you know, uh, the only way it works is by having, you know, higher buildings to, to spread the cost out and to provide affordable housing. Well, you know, you can't have it both ways. You can't have, you know, uh, affordable housing on the one side <laughs> and uh, no height. I mean, that's in an urban setting that that's the trade-off that you have. And so, you know, there are some resistance. And, and you know, I honestly, we have some problems at, at City Hall in, in terms of understanding the challenges. That's, you know, it's just not my opinion. If you talk to everybody in the construction industry, it's this, they say the same thing. The regulatory process is just too onerous, and, and and does not understand the current challenges. So, you know, that's what their, their association is trying to do is to look at policy changes that will create the opportunity to uh, catch up on the supply side and uh, create a dynamic uh, environment for uh, people wanting to live in communities like Halifax and Moncton and others in the region. Mm-hmm. So uh, with that introduction, uh, we like to... Uh, turn our attention to our conversation with Duncan Williams, the president and CEO of CANS. We are pleased to be joined on the Insights Podcast by Duncan Williams, the president and CEO of the Construction Association of Nova Scotia. Duncan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So you've been the president and CEO of the association since January 2012. Can you tell us a little bit about your career path that led you to this current role? probably the most unlikely candidate to be here, to be honest. Uh, I'm a social worker by profession. So um, I spent some time in the food service sector, uh, worked a lot in the disability community. Uh, I'm actually visually impaired myself. A lot of people don't know that. So I live with a disability since birth. And uh, it's interesting that all of the things that we're dealing with now from, um, you know, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, when I did my uh, undergrad degree, all of the things we were talking about as social work language and advocacy then as uh, rampant throughout business and economic discussions now. So it's kind of neat to see the worlds coming, colliding together. So can you tell us about your over overall role uh, of the association? So are you in the lobbying business? Are you in the training business? Are you in the workforce development business? What, what, what exactly does the association do in Nova Scotia? Yeah, so I can answer the affirmative to all of the above. Uh, we, we spend time, obviously, lobbying on behalf of industry. Um, typically, I like to call our lobbying efforts partnership building, really, and relationship building and uh, trying to find common places where industry and government, as one example, come together on policies and so on. We do a, a lot of education. We've been in the education business for uh, formally for about 15, 14, 15 years now. Uh, of course, we do our uh, events every year to bring industry together. And of course, we provide uh, direct services. So projects, plans, rooms, documents, contracts, those type of things. I want to dive a little bit deeper into the services you provide your members. Uh, looking at your website, uh, I was interested uh, on the on the contract side, for instance. Can you describe uh, your services a little bit uh, more specifically? Yeah, so uh, we advocate for the use of CCDC and CCA contracts, and they're standards for industry across the country. So uh, those contracts have been litigated, tested, and designed by all parts of the industry. So they're balanced, they're fair, they manage risk transfer. Uh, so we spend a fair bit of time advocating for the adoption of those by public entities in particular, but 
private entities as well, uh, with the intention that everybody is in a fair contract position. So uh, as an example, you would work with uh, one of your members to, to help them uh, construct a, 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 con a contract with, uh, with whoever they're working with to make sure that it's uh, the, the right uh, legal form and that sort of thing. Is that right? We typically recommend a type of contract for members. Uh, we don't uh, give specific recommendations. We're not a legal advisor. Um, what we do is educate owners, educate buyers of construction, and educate contractors on the documents, their usage, adaptation. And then, of course, what contract makes the most sense for a particular scenario uh, is really up to the individual contractor, but we certainly provide them with some uh, recommendations. You also mentioned, uh, Duncan, uh, providing educational programming. Can you give us a few examples of the kinds of educational programs you're, you're currently doing for members? Yeah, so we probably run 65 to 70 courses per year. Uh, they range everything from Excel, uh, Microsoft Excel, believe it or not, to blueprint reading through to lean construction uh, and everything in between Canadian standards, infection control, um, the list is fairly long. We do some more introductory training as well for folks that are new to the industry. So focused on maybe it's your administrative support or your professionals that are in the back office, giving them an understanding of what the ICI uh, sector looks like and what they need to know to get themselves up to speed and be able to uh, get off on the right foot. Yeah, tell us a little bit about your membership. How many members uh, do you have? And maybe give us a, an ex some examples of the types of companies that uh, are members of your association. So we're about 800 member companies. Um, they're union on and non-union, uh, large and small, trade contractors, general contractors, uh, professional service providers to industry. Um, so it could be accounting firms in some respects, though there's not a lot of those, but the bulk of our membership would be trade contractors and general contractors. Yeah, for uh, disclosure purposes, uh, a company that I have an interest in, Cabco, is um, is a member of of your association. So, um, uh, you know, we know it a little bit from uh, that point of view. So, construction is a very important sector of the economy. Can you tell us a little bit about how big the construction industry is in Nova Scotia? Maybe in terms of its uh, GDP contribution, total employment, that sort of thing. Yeah, so uh, as of today, we're about 65 to 7% of the GDP for Nova Scotia. Uh, it obviously fluctuates, but uh, generally it's been growing and continuing to grow over the last uh, decade or so. Um, in terms of employment, uh, there's a number of numbers out there, but we're somewhere in between 30 and 35,000 people actively participating in the industry today. So that's the industrial, commercial, and the residential side. Have you ever done an economic impact study to sort of assess the broader impacts of your sector? We have not, uh, not in quite some time. It's probably 25 or 30 years. Um, essentially, what we do is collaborate with our partners like the Construction Sector Council, um, who are very good at gathering data, publishing data that's then in turn used by our own membership. So we try our best not to duplicate effort where we can. We also collaborate with Chambers of Commerce, um, ECOA, anybody that's really got a foot in that space, we'll also work with them. Um, so, so long answer to a short question, we don't have our own, but we draw on a lot of sources to provide membership in a timely way uh, with the information they need to make good decisions. I'm just wondering about the distribution of the sector. Obviously, Halifax is disproportionately important given its size, but can you give us a just a breakdown of kind of, uh, you know, the uh, where the where the construction industry is in Nova Scotia, you know, even percentage wise would be helpful. Yeah, Halifax is roughly about 60% uh, of the construction in the province, um, although that varies year over year. Um, we're actually seeing proportionately because the total uh, industry contributions and GDP are going up. Halifax is shrinking as a total, total percentage, but still growing at the same time. So Cape Breton is doing very well uh, with the investments there. So tremendous and amazing opportunities um, 
coming out of Cape Breton. We're seeing resurgence of, of investment and interest in rural Nova Scotia. So, you know, a healthy Halifax means the rest of the province can be healthy and vice versa. We, we need a healthy rural community um, because Halifax can't be successful without it. So we really focus on provincially, how can we build, maintain infrastructure that's going to benefit the entire province and, and ultimately benefit the country. But uh, try we try to keep our attention on the entire province at the same time versus just Halifax. Your most recent strategic plan indicated four priorities uh, for the association, including government and in industry relations, technology and innovation, workforce development, and industry education and training. That plan is uh, up for renewal. I wonder what changes in strategic directions do you anticipate in the development of your new plan? Well, interestingly enough, uh, our board of directors and senior management team met just a few weeks ago, and that was the topic of discussion. So what we did decide was to extend our strategic plan at least another year, um, because what we recognize through ongoing feedback, uh, we don't do flash in the pan once every three years. It's constant input into and refining of our objectives and priorities. So uh, we don't see those bigger buckets changing at all. Uh, workforce is going to be a focus for us for at least the next decade. We know that. Um, industries focus on green adaptation, net zero will be a, a bigger priority for us in terms of uh, education as well as our lobby efforts and making sure that we are an active participant in moving our economy, transitioning away from fossil fuels. Um, so trying to build those collaborative partnerships so it's not a policy decision that's created in an echo chamber. It's, it's, it's informed before it hits uh, the legislature, I would hope. And, you know, we've had positive relationships with uh, the province, the feds, uh, and most municipalities based on those things as well. Um, you know, the, the technology component is tied directly to both of the government relations efforts, especially around net zero green adaptation and our labor force. Um, you know, the, the notion that technology will replace people and put people out of work just doesn't ring true. What we've seen in uh, progressive countries like the U.S., adaptation of technology and productive uh, uh technologies can actually contribute to more projects being able to move ahead at the same time and not be constrained by labor force issues. So uh, it's not a situation where the robots are coming and going to take over uh, jobs. It's hmm. actually the opposite effect. What we're hoping to do through things like automation is take uh, the toughest jobs to fill that generally a lot of people are not attracted to. They just don't want uh, and if we can automate some of those types of things, uh, it frees people to move in value-added positions uh, in other parts of the industry. So, you know, if you look at automation of traffic controls, for example, uh, most of North America is adopted where it makes sense and it's safe. Uh, automated signal controls and, and uh, what that could do for the province potentially is take, you know, 150, 200 folks that are in those jobs that are really tough to fill. Um, and move them into value-added jobs in, in other parts of the, the organization. Uh, with that, we also improve our safety. You know, we, we've seen, for example, in that particular example, safety, public safety and worker safety actually increase with automation in those scenarios because people don't get tired, they don't get heat exhaustion, they don't get cold, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, it's it's a measured effort, but technology is going to be critical to us going forward in terms of how we uh, continue to maintain a safe workplace as well as a productive workplace. Yeah, you mentioned the traffic control. It's interesting. I think there's a company in, in the region who's leading that uh, that automation. Is that not right? Yeah, Site 2020 is, is a company, and full disclosure, they're not even a member of our association, but I mean, they, they've I've had interactions with their uh, founder and CEO and, uh, you know, frankly, I think he's scratching his head as to why we can't adapt more of that in Nova Scotia. They're built, built manufactured here and exported around the world and been adapted in uh, other parts of North America. So, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but uh, I think we are making some headway with, with uh, the province on, on the adaptation of that type of technology. 
Um, it's actually, frankly, an old technology in, in other parts of the world, but here we seem to have a resistance that mm. I can't really explain. I can only uh, equate it to, you know, we came from a position, and I'll, I'll attribute this comment to <laughs> Scott Farmer, who's deputy minister uh, of the province, who said, you know, we, we've had 50, 60 years of having these many jobs and these many people, and now we have these many jobs and these many people. So those things that we built in, knowingly or unknowingly over the last 50, 60 years are now coming back to kind of haunt us. And we have to start slowly but surely peeling away at those uh, protective uh, pieces of policy, legislation, etc. Yeah. Uh, what are your biggest challenges uh, facing your, your sector currently? Labor force, no question about it. Um, it, it is probably the single biggest uh, constraint we have right now, for sure. Uh, supply chains are still um, bumpy, but not nearly as bumpy as they were a year and a half ago. Um, lead times are certainly challenged by both in terms of project delivery on time, on budget. is a real challenge. Uh, a lot more planning, a lot more thought and a lot sharper pencils going into those projects um the other is just just access to capital is becoming more difficult of course with interest rates going up construction is highly interest rate sensitive so uh, i don't think we've seen even close to the full impact of the interest rate changes that we've seen uh, my hope is that we maybe start to roll back the interest rates a little bit, not not a dramatic amount, but um, I think we're, we're starting to see some of the cooling effects, but um, that is going to become a problem in the next 12 to 18 months. There's no question about it. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the workforce. There's about 10,000 of those 30 to 35,000 that you mentioned earlier, according to the census, are about to retire. They're 55 and older. Uh, at the same time, we're going to need an even larger workforce. The GDP contribution from construction is up 40% in the last 10 years, the real GDP adjusted for inflation. And there's plans to grow the economy faster, right? The premier wants to double the size of the population by 2060. Um, so what do you have any idea how many new workers we're going to need over the next decade or, or, or and or what are the specific trades that are the most concerning to you? Yeah, I, you know, I always get a little hesitant talking about hard numbers because a project comes online and changes the entire dynamic uh, if it's big enough. But, you know, we do know there is a significant shortfall. We know at least seven to 10,000. Uh, I would argue it's closer to 11 to 12,000 that we're going to need by 2030 just to uh, keep up with demand and replace our workforce. Um so those those things are going to be informed by how effective we can modify and modernize training programs, access to the right training, uh, agile training, uh, making sure we have a steady stream of the right immigrants coming into the industry, um, removing barriers and, and delays that are just so bureaucratic in nature. Uh, those are big challenges. Uh, we, we have to tap more into underrepresented communities. There's no question about that. Um, however, I'm sure if you talk to some of the folks that are uh, in those communities that, that are spokespersons, uh, they'll tell you they are getting tapped by every industry as well. So um, this is not going to be a silver bullet scenario where there is a solution. Uh, again, I go back to that example I gave earlier. It took us decades to get here. It's going to take take us a bit of time and effort to get back to right sizing and uh, putting in place the systems that we had. You know, we, we moved away from trade schools. We moved away from industrial arts. We moved away from those things. We closed down shops, got rid of the teachers, got rid of the tools and basically made the trades out to be, uh, you know, uh, a choice for those who could cut it in university, which is the exact opposite. Uh, you know, if you, if you look at the number of folks that we need right now, and the requirements for them to understand math, technology, communication skills, um, so critical, relationships, the ability to navigate contracts, all of those types of things are uh, key for anybody coming into the industry. And it's not just the trades. 
you know, we, we're looking for lawyers, we're looking for accountants, we're looking for project managers, engineers, human resource managers, you name it. Uh, there's about 70 high demand uh, areas within the industry. Do you have enough actual companies in the construction sector or will you need to attract more entrepreneurs, more actual companies to set up to meet, uh, to meet the coming demand? Yeah, I, you know, my observation at this point is competition is all, always healthy. You know, we're, we're big proponents of healthy competition with a level playing field. And as long as those two things are in place, the market take care, takes care of the rest, right? Um, I think there is definitely spaces for entrepreneurs. We're seeing more folks focusing on uh, modeling in the green energy space, um, really specializing and becoming experts in that space versus some other companies that may do it off the side of their desk. Uh, I think the transition is going to generate jobs we don't even know about today. Uh, I really do think we're going to see those things come together. We're seeing the um, collective uh, benefits of including IT technology in human resource management on large products for projects, for example. Uh, we're seeing uh, IT solutions and technical what we would have called gadgets or toys, uh, you know, drones a few years ago, now are uh, examining the um, uh, structural integrity of wind wind towers and, and turbines and so on. Uh, we're going to see more of that. There's no question about it. So there is a lot of opportunity for growth here. You know, my, my ideal vision of Nova Scotia is that we move to a point where uh, we are exporting uh, products and and building the assets we have here. I'm not naive enough to think that we're going to replace all of the containers coming from overseas through the Port of Halifax, but we should at least look at the assets we have and make sure that we build on those assets and create clusters. You know, um, I look at what we've done in the ocean sector, that, that model uh, makes a lot of sense. We have all of the elements for success in the construction, engineering, architect, design community as well here in Nova Scotia. We've got some of the best schools in North America right here. Um, and we've got really creative people. And we are geographically in one of the most important positions on the globe. Um, but we're not taking full advantage of it yet. So I, I think there's a tremendous opportunity there. Looking at things like offsite construction, um, you're going to see that grow as well because as a result of uh, labor shortage, primarily driven by labor shortage, but there's also a lot of other benefits in terms of cost certainty, uh, the ability to uh, control conditions on projects and be able to to meet budgets, timelines, and so on, and, and scale those things up. You will see more of that coming in the next uh, ten years, I would say. Duncan, you're sounding like an economic developer. I like the I like the sound of it. Um, we did interview UNB. There's an off-site construction a research center, of course, at the University of New Brunswick. Uh, and we got an update on what's happening in New Brunswick. But are, are you suggesting there's um, a move toward growing the off-site uh, construction sector in Nova Scotia as well? Yeah, I, you know, we're, we're hearing from smaller companies in particular. We're seeing merger acquisitions. We're seeing folks that are, you know, frustrated, frankly, because they just can't recruit people. Um, that are some of them are hanging up their skates and going home. So, and then there's opportunities where other companies are coming in with a different approach um, and attracting a different labor force. And I think you will see some of those things that you're talking about of UMB. We've got a great partnership with them. Um, I would suspect that you're going to see some of that spill over into Nova Scotia. I, I would hope we do because there's there's a place for it. It's not going to be for every project. There's no solution that's right for every project, but there is space for it. There's no question about it. Just one more question on the labor supply. So if you look at the size of the education sector, Nova Scotia has a much larger university sector, uh, one of the largest in the country as a share of GDP. And that's, of course, because of the big universities in Halifax and elsewhere. But it doesn't have, it has a, a smaller than average across the country college and trade sector in terms of the, the training. Um are you comfortable that the, there's work being done now that's going to actually get that labor supply addressed? Are you, you know, you talked about some of the initiatives earlier, but do you think government and the post-secondary education sector is is stepping up and going to address this thing? I think we're having the right conversations. Um, you know, the next year is going to be critical to whether those conversations translate into direct outcomes and actions. You know, we, we've been for 
quite some time, well over a decade now, advocating for changes in the way we administer some of these programs to make them more efficient, more cost-effective, uh, more nimble. You know, we, we, we've got to meet industry's needs sooner uh, and uh, in a better way. You know, we, we can't expect somebody to go into a college system and teach the same course for 10 years um, without having put their foot back into industry and seeing what's changed. So, and I'm not saying that's happening. I'm just, we have to make sure that our instructors are supported properly, good equipment, right facilities, right locations, creating centers of excellence are important. Um, you know, and, that, and that's a bit of a challenge because we're undoing 30 years of work, uh, right or wrong, that's been put into driving everybody towards the university system. Um, you know, if you, if, if my stats are correct, I think around 40% of the first year college cohort at NSCC, uh, past couple of years has been people who've gone to university and said, this is really not for me. You know, um, I'm a university graduate. I, it's, so I don't have anything against university education. We need all of it. You know, we need, we need efficient systems, um, more importantly, I think we need to align education policy with what industries need. You know, and there's lots of debate about academics versus we're not, we're a production facility for the, the employer. I think we're a bit of both. And I think we've got to get okay with that. You know, um, if I look at the Dalhousie Medical School, uh, we produce surgeons for a reason. We need to employ them to perform life-saving surgeries. Um, that's a production facility. Uh, as much as, you know, somebody may take issue with what I've just said there, the reality is that's what we do. We produce what the economy needs for us to improve our standards of living, uh, our health care outcomes. It's no different than industry, um, with the exception of one is private and one is public. So there, there's a, uh, a lot of work and a lot of conversations going on around those things. Some of the changes that have already been made, I think, are, are going to pay off. Ratios, for example, for apprentice to journey person were changed last year. Um, you know, we were one of the last holdouts uh, in North America to still have a one-to-one -one ratio. Um, partially predicated on it was a safety issue, it was a quality of training issue. But our research and the environmental scan just basically busted those myths. It doesn't exist. Uh, in fact, we've seen lower... Uh, time loss injuries, uh, workers' comp claims in jurisdictions where there are no ratios. I don't agree with that philosophy either. I think we have to have uh, good standards. There are safety issues, and they are real, uh, and you need a quality training programs, but it has to be balanced. Uh, just a little bit more on uh, on workforce. Uh, wanted to get your opinion on what, you know, any other specific initiatives do you think that are required to increase the supply, especially with regard to immigration? <clears throat> Obviously, immigration has been growing really for the first time in our history. Um, <clears throat> you know, what is your industry doing to attract more immigrants to, to your sector? Well, I, I think going back maybe five, six years, uh, at least we've been, we've been really working as an industry to say, how do we do a better job of bringing people that don't look like you and me uh, and white male? So how do we do a better job of integrating new Canadians? How do we do a better job of integrating people that already are here uh, and are ready to go to work? Um, so that's some of the initial work that had to happen. How do you create the conditions for success at the owner level? Because if they don't care, none of the rest matters. We've moved past the point of caring and understanding now to they want to do it. The next level is making sure that our uh, sites are ready for it. So the training, the awareness, the acceptance building is present. At the same time, uh, you know, working on the policy of who is coming into the country and how do we get them in faster when they have the right skills. Um, you know, our, our point system right now is very biased. If you have a university degree, a PhD, your points go up dramatically. If you're a welder or you're a plumber or a tradesperson, you know, you're, you're down further on the totem pole. And we do need academics. We do need PhDs. We do need doctors and et cetera. But we also need people to build houses and build hospitals for those folks to practice in. 
uh, and live in. And we've got to change dramatically the way we are looking at credentialing, getting people in the speed at which we get people in this country as, you know, is abysmal, to be honest. Um, we need to do a better job of those things. And those are not going to change overnight. Um, there are securities, there are things in place for, for obvious reasons, but we can find more efficient ways of doing it uh, and better align with what we need as an employer, as an industry. I think beyond those things, you know, it's also building community awareness, you know, and helping those folks that are coming here, make sure they're settled is we've seen too many times we're able to recruit them. And then soon as they're here, if they don't feel that they've put roots down and they're at home, they're gone. They leave and go to where a community of uh, folks that are like them uh, are. So if you're, you're in a particular uh, cultural community, uh, typically they're going to gravitate to where they feel supported and included. And we need to do more to make sure that that happens here on the ground. And there are some really good um, programs. ISANS does a good job of those things. For example, uh, we do have some really good initiatives. So I think we, do, we need to double down on them, though. Um, and they need to be more efficient. There's no question about it. We've had a, a few of our um, private sector guests uh, talk about their own initiatives to recruit foreign workers outside the the system on their own. Uh, are there any such efforts to recruit to foreign workers directly to your sector? Yeah, uh, there are some. Uh, we're going to see more. Um, the, the challenge that we've had is getting solid understanding of, you know, if I'm making an offer to somebody or if I'm going to go to a particular country and recruit, you know, we need some service standards. We need some guarantees as to how quickly we can get people in. Because if I'm a private owner and I'm bidding work, I'm, I'm planning my workforce, you know, as I'm building that proposal. Uh, without some of those predictable um, labor force participants, uh, being in stream to land in my company on a, in a predictable time, it makes it really tough for me to, to uh, commit, right? So there is some challenges there, and it, it's not necessarily anybody's fault. It's just they we're in a very different time and space than we've been in, you know, uh, mm. and that, that's going to take some adaptation of policy and programming uh, over the next little while. Uh, we do have some companies that have gone on trade missions. The province has been super open to that, uh, federal government has been very supportive of those things. So the will is there. Part of it is in the details of getting people here, making it efficient, um, and making it effective in terms of, you know, we, we ran into a scenario just a little while ago where uh, a member company was told, this person that you're trying to recruit needs to have $13,000 in the bank before we get here. So we done a little digging into that and said, well, why $13,000? <laughs> What it really comes down to and where we got guidance was, you know, they just need to be able to take care of themselves for the first month or, month or two while they're in the country. Okay, well, that's that's very different than $13,000 and you're recruiting from a place that pays, uh, you know, $2 a day. There is no way in hell they're going to ever have $13,000 in the bank. It's not going to happen, right? Uh, most Canadians don't have $13,000 in the bank, unfortunately. Yeah. I want to change topics for a second. Um, obviously, we have a, a housing supply challenge right now. Um, the demand has been growing rapidly due to significant population growth that we're not used to, obviously. Uh, we have to scale in a, up in a different way. I, you know, Can you tell us how many housing units are currently under construction in the province, Duncan? <laughs> I'm going to purely guess, but I, right now I think there's around 5,800. Um, that I'm aware of. Um, somebody may correct me on that number, but that was the latest number I did see. So that is above average, no question about it. We are moving through as quickly as we can. And that's single family, it's multifamily, uh, high rise, uh, etc. So uh, the challenge there, of course, is getting the labor force to get more housing online faster. Um, you know, the, the tough part of this is we started this conversation 10 years ago. Uh, so these things were very, very predictable that they were going to happen, with the exception of a couple of things. One, 
we didn't plan for a pandemic. So all of the things we'd been predicting in terms of workforce challenges got expedited, right? Um, so the, the folks that stepped out and retired earlier, um, that was one factor. The immigration stream dried up. That was another factor. Um, the graduation rates from the apprenticeship program and the college uh, was impacted by the, the COVID pandemic. Uh, and then the new entrants coming in was impacted. All in addition to the fact that we did not anticipate the number of people that said, you know what, I'm down in the downtown Toronto high rise. I want to go live in Nova Scotia where I can breathe the air and see the birds in the morning when I get up and have my coffee. Um, we couldn't have predicted that. Um, so the challenge, uh, challenges that come out of that, in addition to supplies, uh, complicated these things a lot. So the natural progression and ability to scale up, uh, the perfect storm hit us. We had all of those factors go wrong at exactly the same time, right? So had we been able to keep that out of there, we still would have had labor challenges. They would not have been maybe as severe as they are right now, but we still would have had these, these issues. And, you know, that's part of the conversation that we've been trying to have for over a decade is we need to make sure while interest rates are low, we're having the right conversations. We're changing the rules. We're, we're modifying things. Uh, we're expediting programming, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we're getting the kids at a younger age. You know, we look at Scandinavian countries, um, primary, they start talking about careers and what people want to do, what, what kids want to do. And they do it through group learning, project learning, where, somebody's natural abilities just come up it's not a streaming we don't stream somebody uh according to what we think they should do their natural abilities just start to bubble up and it's and it's uh evident in you know you look at germany and places like that they dominate the world in engineering and sophistication when it comes to those things and it's for those reasons so you know we we've got some work ahead of us to do that uh to move closer to that model um over time I wanted to ask you a little bit more about housing demand. Um, if you look at the data going back 20 years, Nova Scotia usually somewhere around three to 4,000 housing completions per year. And I'm now looking more at completions and starts because we're seeing a larger gap between starts and completions due to supply chain and labor problems. But if you look at the completions last year, there was about 5,200 in Nova Scotia. Uh, and I think now we're looking at a structural change. We're going to, because of this rising population growth across the province, including Cape Breton and elsewhere, we're going to need, I think, more a higher sustained level, maybe somewhere around five or 6,000 per year. But do you guys have any, at your association, any estimate of, of how many housing units do you think we're going to be needing moving forward? Yeah, if, if we're going to get to 2 million people in this province, uh, the reality is based on current uh, household formations, we're probably closer to needing thirteen to 15,000 units a year. Um, wow. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so, you know, this is going to be a war for talent. Um, and it's not even just between us in New Brunswick or us in Newfoundland or us in Ontario. You, you've got to keep in mind, at the same time that we're talking about housing shortages here, you've got mega projects being uh, put on on the map in the U.S. that need ten and twenty thousand uh, uh, people per project, and there's hundreds of those. So, and the U.S. has no way of meeting that demand. Um, so they are going to start looking north. They are going to start looking at our tradespeople. So, the days of worrying about just Alberta um, are are long gone. Um, that is not our main competition. There is always going to be that those folks that choose that lifestyle and do the turnarounds. Um, my big worry is going to be south of the border, uh, to be perfectly honest. And they're going through some of the same things we are. Um, they already have a shortage, so they're they're looking as well, right? So we're going to be competing on a global scale for uh, individuals, uh, and the competition is going to be stiff. It's going to be fierce, uh, I would say, for at least the next eight to ten years minimum. Yeah, I think it's going to require a cultural ch culture change because I think historically what has happened is construction has kind of gone boom and bust. And so, you know, there's been periods when, uh, you know, the construction workforce has struggled to find jobs. And then other times when there's too many jobs and things just kind of 
sort of work themselves out. But at the end of the day, I think we're into a structural change now. And if we're going to get increased competition, as you say, from other jurisdictions, we should probably be looking at oversupply. So instead of the 13th, maybe we need 20,000 more. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, a little bit of oversupply is a healthy thing. Uh, and, you know, some of, some of the folks in the development community may kick me for saying that, but the reality is we're still in a supply and demand economy, right? And, uh, you know, older stock will, will remain at affordable prices. Uh, it doesn't mean that they are slums or anything else, but they're going to be more affordable. That's history. That's not my opinion. That's history. That's how it's worked. Um, if we constrain through policy, regulation, municipal bylaws, whatever it is, the supply uh, and continue to constrain it because we still have constraints that are um, regulatory and so on. And I've had many conversations with various levels of government that say, fix your house while interest rates are low. Fix your house um, because the interest rates will go up. They always do come back. Um, that has happened to a certain degree, but there's there's still structural problems. So, you know, there was a, a tendency with some individuals uh, within various levels of government to point then to, well, it's, it's, it's a labor supply issue. It's nothing we did wrong. No, that's not true. The, <laughs> the simple fact is the labor supply was very predictable. Uh, the issues that we ran in were very predictable with the exception of a pandemic. Um, but we've had three years to adapt to that. So... You know, we, we have to look at how we land bank. We have to look at those things. Uh, we have to look at bylaw enforcement, the way we, we develop policy around those things. They have a direct impact on the cost to the end consumer. You know, and if you're going to talk about affordability, um, there is affordable solutions, but you have to look at them as a systemic um, and interconnected set of bylaws, regulatory frameworks, uh, standards and practices, and then the efficiency with which all of those systems work together or don't. And unfortunately, a lot of them still don't. We're still trying to figure that out, right? Um, and then, you know, throw in things like uh, cuts to, to hours of operation for construction, uh, like the noise bylaw did, was based on a very, very basic um, number of, of inputs. I think there were about uh, maybe 100 and some odd complaints a year over a five-year period in a city of almost a half a million people growing rapidly and a construction industry that's expanded dramatically. I understand the frustration of having jackhammers going in your neighborhood, but if a project takes uh, 24 hours to build, it takes 24 hours build, to build. Now you can spread that out over three days or you can spread it out over 10 days. I prefer personally, because I don't like construction noise no more than anybody else, but I prefer you're going to be, be annoying me for three days versus uh, five days, right? And what gets lost in that debate about noise and dust and all those good things is uh, if you take those productive hours out of the work week, seven and a half doesn't sound like a lot, but if you have seven and a half times a hundred people on a site, you've just lost 750 productive hours of uh, hours that you could have that project done. In addition to that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm leasing that crane that much longer. I'm paying insurance that much longer. I'm financing that much longer. I'm in the deep curve of the J curve where I'm spending money and not bringing money in that much longer. So those things get added up and passed along to the consumers. So that what seems to be simple change in noise bylaw, our estimates are it's, it's 14 to 16% in terms of uh, cost that's going to be passed on the consumer. And there are those that will challenge me and say, well, most people didn't work till those hours at night at, at all. You're right, they didn't. But there were some, and there was an allowance for it, and there was the ability to do it. So what we did was take a swath, a big brush to fix uh, pockets of problems, which we already had the toolbox there to do it, which was the construction mitigation plan, for example. So all we had to do in that, in that whole debate was put in an element that says how will you uh, build respectfully in the neighborhood you're in based on the demographics and you know if you're if you're in the middle of Muscadabit and there's not a house around you for a kilometer, um, people are less concerned. If you're in South End Halifax and there's there's residential uh, houses all around you, of course they're going to be concerned. So take you you take a different approach. Each project is approached differently. So 
those policies and regulations should reflect the nature of the project and not just a broad-based decision that's based on very poor uh, information and, uh, frankly, an absence of good data. It sounds like your associations has some pretty good policy ideas to, to kind of get the housing supply sped up in Nova Scotia. But at the same time, the big banks are all calling for less housing starts next year due to broader concerns around interest rates. And by the way, not only interest rates for the consumer, interest rates that the construction companies have to pay uh, as they're yeah. carrying the cost of developing these projects. So um, it's frustrating for guys like Don and I because we want to see growth. But housing supply is a, is a natural constraint on population growth. If you don't have the housing, the people won't come. Um, yeah. Um, so are you, do you think these policy, uh, ideas that your association is putting forward and advocating, do you think, are you going to get some traction on those? I would hope, I mean, people are listening. Uh, the challenge is these are complex. They're not, there's not a single policy fix here. Um, I can tell you, you know, to your point though, interest rates are a blanket policy that, um, does have a direct impact on everybody. And we went probably to my recollection, uh, um, I think we went the furthest, the fastest we've ever gone in our history with interest rates and uh, over a very short period of time. My, my always been my concern with the, the approach on this, um, the monetary policy, the fiscal policy, pieces of this are all predicated on the availability of labor we don't have the people so um you know if you boil it really boil it down to when i had a thousand workers and you know i somebody said to me i uh i want more money and i you know pay me more i leave there was somebody waiting in the wings i'm not saying that that was right i'm just saying that was part of the reality and interest rates uh and the the uh, connectivity to wages and increases in wages are tied together, right? Um, the problem with the way we've done the policy increases and, you know, the Bank of Canada are, are smarter people than me, but uh, so I have to trust what they're doing. But the piece that's never been answered for me is how do you account for that lack of labor, uh, sorry, unavailability of labor? Uh, right now, so if I have a, a you know workers out there and I'm I'm they're feeling the pressure, I'm feeling the pressure and as as an employer because I want you know to treat people right, but there's limits to that too until you just start passing it on to the consumer. So you know we we went really fast, really hard on interest rates um, without the normal uh, cycle behind them to say okay it's having an impact. Um, you know, the traditional model is 12 to 18 months before you see the true impact of that increase. We did, I think, five to six increases in less than 18 months, which is unheard of. Um, and I understand the principles behind it. I just don't think that that is going to serve us well if we don't start to roll it back. I would hope in August we'll see at least 500 basis points come back because you're right, people are going to get nervous. And sooner or later, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Most, you know, most recessions are, right? Yeah. Uh, we have several more topics to, to talk about, but and one of them is uh, affordable housing, obviously increasing homelessness that we see almost everywhere. Um, you know, this is a difficult, challenging topic, obviously, but I wanted to ask what you thought the role the private sector was in addressing this particular problem as opposed to the role that government plays. I think the private sector can come forward with creative solutions. Um, the challenge and the constraints for the private sector are within government control, though. Uh, we have a lot of levers in government. Um, you know, we're seeing rollouts of multi-billion-dollar funding arrangements and so on. Which, sure, uh, they're they're okay. the the reality is, though, until that money actually gets to a shovel-ready project, it, it doesn't matter. And getting to the shovel-ready project is the biggest challenge. Between the regulatory frameworks, the inefficiencies in the, those processes, the permitting, the planning, um, you know, and the, the enhanced rigor around um, social license and uh, 
getting approval on projects uh, is is immense now. I mean, the tail on on a project um, has gotten longer and longer progressively every year, and with that is the cost, right? So, I think if we can figure out how to balance those things um, and make them more efficient, and at the same time respect the fact that you know communities want involvement, communities want say, I have no issue with that. But the way it's being done right now is very inefficient, um, and you know we we've got structures that uh, are being drawn into conversations about exactly the wrong things that they should be concerned about. You know, we, we've got uh, community councils at times talking about the glazing on a building. You know, that's not their, that's not what they should be focusing on. They should be focusing mm-hmm. on, is this the right project for these particular neighborhoods? Do they make sense um, from a, a global point of view versus a micro point of view, which is, you know, the color of the glass in the, in the building. Right. Uh, I wonder if your association has done any kind of an estimate about uh, the number of affordable units that are needed to be built annually to address the current issue. We have not done anything formal, but we do collaborate with uh, a number of other associations. And and I would say the uh, closest approximation would be about that 10% that need to be um, somehow under that $1,000 benchmark uh, per month in terms of rent. Again, looking at the size of the projects, the density, looking at all those things, uh, scales of economy are still that. They are, they are scales of economy. You know, We take corridors in this city, in Halifax, for example, and we say, okay, you can build here, but you have to do these 14 things. Um, by the time somebody looks at it and goes, and you want me to put affordable units in there, and you want me to keep it at six stories, forget it. It's not feasible. Uh, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's not mathematically practical, right? So I think we have to continue to challenge and align the thinking, the desires of the, the communities, and the realities of the, the economy. I think we have to constantly be revisiting those and making sure that they are matching up and and. Uh, working together versus right now, I think a lot of times they are uh, probably further apart than they've been in a long time. We've talked a lot about housing. We wanted to ask you about the commercial construction. Of course, as we grow, we need new roads. We need new uh, non-residential uh, uh, buildings and infrastructure. We are also seeing a, a large increase in energy-related infrastructure and plans for massive onshore and offshore wind and hydrogen and all these projects that are in the hopper. What trends are you seeing in commercial construction, and are you? Uh, what are your thoughts around uh, trends in the coming years? Well, I mean, you're bang on. Uh, people are not going to come to Nova Scotia or Halifax or Sydney or wherever it is in the province without um, having the things that they deem important to them. So, schools, recreational facilities, um, a variety of restaurants and shops, and and shopping experiences, and green space, and outdoor spaces, and academic structures—you name it—the list goes on. It, it, all of those things moving ahead at the same time as we're trying to uh, transition the economy are going to be monumental. They're they're complex. Uh, so, in a nutshell, I think for the commercial sector, uh, that the opportunities are boundless for the next, I would say, decade, twenty years at least. Um, if we get it right, um, if we send the wrong signals that we're not open for business, uh, capital is extremely portable. Um, and if, you know, I look, I look at the permitting fee structure that was just changed at council here in Halifax, you know, a 25% increase pretty much overnight with little to no warning. Um, the argument being, you know, we haven't done it in years. Well, Maybe we need to revisit that, but the reality is you've you've just sent another shockwave through the industry, and you know the comparators that were in the staff report, we actually flushed them out, and they weren't apples to apples. When I can go to uh, Moncton or even Ottawa or St. John's and build at you know thirty to forty cents on the dollar in terms of permitting fees and so on, and you know we've got uh, cities like. Uh, Moncton who are saying, come build here. We've got the runway clear. We're ready for you to land. Um, You know, capital moves quickly. And we've got a lot of advantages here. I think we just have to really double down on them. I I think Halifax has done an outstanding job as a community. We've we've seen 
amazing growth. We've seen a lot of really good things happening, um, but others are catching up, right? So we need to we need to step our game up again and make sure that we are clearly stating we are open for business. Um, Duncan, you talked earlier about how you're seeing construction growth in other parts of Nova Scotia, like uh, Sydney, Cape Breton. I want to ask you a specific question that wasn't in the in the pre question list, so I apologize on, about that. But it's been bugging me. Uh, there's about two hundred thousand ha- homes in Nova Scotia that are oil heated, and the federal government is looking at completely eliminating oil heated homes, or maybe even it's the provincial government. I'm not sure. By 2035, that's 12 years from now. How do you convert 200,000 homes from oil heat to electricity or other forms of clean energy in 12 years? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, listen, I, I mean, I'm like anybody else. <laughs> no, I, I'm like anybody else. I, I've, I'm still on oil right now. Uh, I do have other sources of heat, but, um, you know, when my oil bill doubled in the last 12 months, the reality is, uh, you know, you could argue that's an incentive to move to another platform and the reality is yes it is if you can afford to do that um that's great uh but i i'm not convinced yet that we're uh you know carbon taxes on oil are taking more money out of people's pocket versus incentivizing them to move to another technology you know uh, to me to tax people to to it's like a fine for driving on the highway um I don't think it's it's a effective tool for those that can afford to switch. Yeah, sure, it's going to be an effective tool. I'll make the switch because I can pretty much write a check for it, and I'm okay. That's not the majority of Nova Scotians, um, so I, I don't think it's an effective way forward. I think we need to change absolutely. Um, there's no question about it. How we do it over the next ten years is going to be an uphill climb. Uh, I think. Though the reality is if government looks to the private sector, private sector will respond. Um, And if it listens to the private sector, more importantly, uh, I think you will see the response. And what I mean by listen is create the conditions for success, predictable policy, uh, like we've done with the schools and highways. There's five-year plans now. So people are willing to invest in the technology, the equipment, etc., to respond to that need. But if we have changing policy that's uh, a yo-yo every couple of years, I'm not going out and investing in those things, Um, which means that we're going to have less capacity to move forward on making these changes. So um, I think we're getting there. The roadmap is getting clearer, but it's going to take a little bit more time. And and again, it's nobody's fault. These are complex issues, very complex. Uh, Duncan, we're almost out of time. Uh, the final question I, I wanted to ask you is, uh, given the importance of your industry to the economy and the future of the province, what specific recommendation uh, do you, does your association have uh, for government that would improve your ability to meet the growing construction needs in the province? Uh, work with us. Um, you know, we, we're, we're seeing improvements in certain areas, but all too often there's uh, policy formed in echo chambers and you can't do that. Not in a modern age. Uh, it was never effective, but it's, it's far less effective uh, than it's ever been. So our plea to every level of government is look to us as trusted partners. Um, you know, we all live here too. We all work here. Uh, we want to be here. We choose to be here. So, uh, you know, work with us. Uh, sometimes I, 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 wonder if there's not a um you know uh, undercurrent of belief that every construction firm out there is just greedy cash mongers and that's it uh, and same <laughs> with the development community and i mean i can tell you I, I know a lot of people in this industry in the development community and the number of projects that are you know barely above water right now uh, but people are still passionate about getting them completed uh, there's a lot of them. So a crane in the air doesn't mean that somebody is making ridiculous profits, um, especially in the conditions we're in right now. You know, the, the nature of their business has changed dramatically with before um, that crane went in the air. The plan was solid. 
by the time the crane comes down, uh, that those conditions for that particular project are dramatically different. So it's important for government to work with us. And I, I don't mean consultants coming out and talking at us as an industry and, and having made decisions. Bring us in the room. These are creative people who solve very complex problems every day. This is what they do best. So if you apply that gray matter to uh, the way we form policy, I think you would see dramatic uh, increases in productivity and creativity. And frankly, I think our standard of living would actually go up even more here. Uh, and we could solve some of these problems. I've seen solutions come forward that are very well informed excuse me, very, very well informed, but, um, you know, in some respects dismissed um, because they came from the private sector. So um, I, I think we have to get past it. You know, we have, we have to realize that everybody's got to play a role in this academia, private sector, public sector, uh, union, non-union, whatever the, the mix up is, we need to be at the same table talking about the problem. No one, one part of the equation is going to be uh, the solution provider on its own. Duncan, thank you for joining us today on the Insights Podcast and providing an overview of your industry and the important role it plays in the growth and prosperity of Nova Scotia. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Duncan. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.